Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. The war in Ukraine is just over one year old. There is widespread talk of a major spring offensive from both sides. War in Europe, once unthinkable, is now the new normal. But for one nation on Russia's northern border, this feels like deja vu. It's a reminder of the czars who dominated them from the time of Napoleon until the Russian Revolution, or Joseph Stalin, who invaded their land, or the Soviets who meddled in their affairs throughout the Cold War. Like Ukraine, Finland knows what it's like to share a long border with Russia. The Finns have had Vladimir Putin as a neighbor, and they've been performing the same delicate dance of decoupling under his very watchful eye. A few weeks ago, Finland's ambassador to the United States, Miko Hautula, invited me and a few political colleagues over for dinner at his residence. It was a memorable night, not just because of the stiff Finnish drinks he served, but also because of the unique insights he shared. And I knew that you would want to hear all about it. This week, I returned to see him, this time at the Finnish embassy, with two microphones and a very strong belief that Washington needs to know what he does about the war in Ukraine and how it is changing virtually every facet of global statecraft. I'm Ryan Lizza, and this is Playbook Deep Dive. Before his posting to Washington, Miko Hautula was Finland's ambassador to Russia, where he met Vladimir Putin more times than he can count. I couldn't help but notice that outside the entrance of the sauna at the Finnish residency, which is a well-known destination for reporters and diplomats and government officials, hangs a picture of the ambassador and Putin. Hautula occupied his post in Moscow during the critical years following Putin's first invasion of Ukraine. He arrived here in Washington in 2020, and since the war began, he's become well-known as the person to talk to to understand Putin and Russia and the conflict in Ukraine. At the embassy, we discussed what Americans don't understand about the Russian leader, the implications of the growing alliance between China and Russia, Finland's accession to NATO, and why he believes the West needs to massively ramp up its industrial capability if it wants Ukraine to survive. We are taking risks already. You are Finland. I mean, many countries are taking risks. Uh, And Finland is far, I mean, it's not the only one. But uh, these risks have to be managed. They have to be calculated. I mean, it, it's not going to happen like like people are giving everything they have and then then hope for the best. This is not how the countries or the states behave. So uh, I think the decisions about the uh, manufacturing and, and um, uh, kind of uh, ramping up the production is these are really crucial uh, in the next coming months. What more could the United States be doing? Well, I think um, I wouldn't put it in terms of what do we expect the U.S. to do. I think we have to do more both. The, the most, the key idea here is to, to also define the right magnitude right. of things. Right. And, and, and I Has think, that been lacking? 
Because in the U.S., the debate is all about calibration. Yeah. And everything is, everything is put through this formula of, will this escalate beyond what we're all comfortable with? Um, will this enlarge, enlarge the war? It seems like every military decision for the last year has been made um, with that formula in mind. Correct me if I'm wrong. And which, is that the right way to be looking at aid, military aid to Ukraine? Well, obviously, there's always going to be a, a, some uh, assessment of the risks. Uh, and European countries are, of course, assessing that as well. So um, I think we have to be mindful of that dimension. I think what I'm sometimes bothered uh, by is the fact that quite often our media discussion, also in my own country, is like people are looking for the silver bullets. Yeah. Sometimes it's F-16, sometimes it's long-range HIMARS. I mean, it's like some miraculous weapon could somehow change the situation and solve the problem. That's not the right approach, in my opinion. The right approach is to see that Ukrainians do need, it's a systemic approach that you have to have here. Yeah. They, obviously, I do believe they need a, a number of uh, kind of high, high sort of uh, high level capabilities, but they also need massive amounts of basic stuff. So uh, I think we should look at the challenge in, in its totality instead of trying to sort of chase the latest uh, fancy idea of, of, of this drone or that drone. I mean, uh, they all might be really important and they might be needed. I'm not uh, saying that, but uh, I think uh, when you are looking at some, some magical silver bullet, you tend to lose the idea of the magnitude of the total, the systemic. And then you you may actually be really busy with helping Ukraine, but then you perhaps even forget about the fundamental decisions about your own industrial base. Okay, what needs to be done so that this help can be given in a sustainable manner. What do people? What do people in the West, especially in the United States, and especially in Washington, not understand? Uh, but the difficulty that the Ukrainians have is that uh, at some point in the future, they have to convince, or a large part of the Russian society will. They must be convinced that they have a right to exist in the form, shape, like, as they wish. So we can't really expect to be in a controlling position over them. But the thing that you think is important is that Russian society believes that, that a popular opinion in the country rejects the, the, the Putin view. I, I, I do think so, because um, unless uh, you have a deeper societal mood and popular opinion in Russia that, hey, we can't really go back to the empire. It's too costly, both in terms of manpower, economic resources, that, that we really can't do it. And also conclude that, hey, Ukrainians, they do have their own freedom. They, they deserve that. I mean, we, we can't do it like this. Yeah. Unless they conclude that, I mean, everybody will not be on board ever. We will always have this uh, imperial sort of train of thought and schooling in Russia. Yeah. But the majority must somehow conclude that the Ukrainians will have, they have a right to exist. I know it's hard to assess this from the outside, but since the start of the war, w which direction has pu public opinion gone on that question, in your opinion? Uh, I think most of the 
population in Russia, they support the war. Yeah. Uh, what I mean by supporting is, it's not that everybody is equally sort of uh, supportive or somehow enthusiastic. I think most of them are supporting the basic idea. Some of them are ready to go along, and and they also they are very good at kind of uh, giving the responsibility to somebody else. If the leader starts the war, then he must know better. So there are different shades of acceptance, but the real fact is that most of them, uh, I do believe, and I, I do see it, they accept the basic ideas of the war, including the imperial component that we have to somehow, you, you can name it whatever you want, but we have to control that. We, we can't really accept Ukrainians becoming kind of a part of the different system. So uh, that's why I believe uh, we are f- dealing with, not only with Putin or his government, but we are also dealing with the Russian society. Listening to you, I don't think you're going to have an easy answer to this, because one of the things that really comes out here is that we should be thinking about this as a long-term conflict. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of the thinking at the start of the war, and even in some of the anniversary coverage to mark the one the one year point of the war, has uh, treated it as something that was um, temporary. You know, if we uh, these big aid packages from the U.S. perspective, these big aid package aid packages to Ukraine will help them uh, push this offensive back, and the Ukrainians will settle into maybe a, a low-level conflict or, or something, but our role um, will re- be reduced o- 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 over time. And not that the situation is going to be be solved, but it won't be the, the sort of uh, emergency that it's been for the last year and the priority that it's been for, for, for President Biden. Um, you're really emphasizing the long-term nature of, of this conflict. So one, if you do you think of it in... I'm assuming you don't think of it in terms of months, but more likely years. Mm. But two, what are the what are the most likely uh, scenarios right now for um, for ending it, if that word even uh, applies? This conflict has to do with the Russian society as well, and, and a number of core beliefs of the Russian people. So um, that's why I also see that uh, there's a long evity to this conflict because somehow in order to really have a, a, a kind of a permanent and sustainable peace uh, peace is not uh, it, it can't be it cannot exist in a vacuum in a sense that these two countries have a peace and then because you need to take a look at the whole European security system anew before we can have a fundamental peace one of the elements of that fun, kind of a lasting peace must be a kind of a new understanding in, in Russia that some things we can't do no longer. Because if mm. the war ends, even if it ends tomorrow, and everybody would be clapping their hands for the ceasefire, the fundamental forces that that took Russia right. to these measures, they, right. they, they, they remain. Right. So that's why I think uh, uh, you may have different levels of intensity in this conflict. You may even have a ceasefire, but until the Russians uh, in some way or another do kind of define their own policies like we are excluding this this manner of, of dealing with our neighbors, uh, the potential remains 
and we have to take it seriously. Uh, I think in the short term, uh, I don't expect um, dramatic changes. I don't think we have yet seen the, the, the big attack mm. from any of the sides. So uh, it, these are local operational uh, uh, battles that we see in Bahamut and in the south. Uh, I think the next few months, when the spring really uh, starts, will show how things will turn. If I look at the data that I see, uh, like I said, I don't expect any major uh, kind of a dramatic changes in the short term. But again, uh, both countries have a very good motivation. Uh, Russia has a lot of stamina. Uh, there are no cracks in the Russian system. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any of them, uh, to be very honest. So um, I, it's very hard to see any reasons for Putin uh, to conclude that this war is, is, is now unwinnable. I think he concludes the other way around. He concludes that I have more stamina. I can stay in the game longer. Uh, they are uh, putting their economy in a war footing. So I think they are. Uh, their story to themselves is that uh, we can still kind of gradually take over. We can gradually uh, grind them down. And, and that's why I do believe that uh, uh, even if the uh, Russian potential attack now in the, in the spring, even if it, it is unsuccessful, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, automatically that they would be ready for uh, any kind of lasting peace. Let's, I mean, let's talk about the other consequences of, of the war. How do you view the budding uh, relationship between China and, and Russia? I've been always or for many years of the opinion that these countries are probably closer than we like to think. Yeah. Uh, they are closer in the sense that uh, they have a number of uh, common fundamental uh, ideas. One of them is that uh, the world has to be multipolar, which means that they want to weaken the role of the West, the position of the West. Uh, especially now Russia is, is, is ready to basically dismantle the European security system, including the legal obligations they had from the OSCE, from the UN Charter, and so on. Uh, China has not been, uh, to put it mildly, uh, ready to condemn Russia for those rather fundamental actions yeah. against the international order. Yeah. And obviously, one thing I, I did notice during my years in Moscow was the uh, uh, really uh, frequent meetings at the high level. Mm. Uh, because the, the, the Russian top leadership, uh, including President Putin, and the Chinese top leaders, they, at some point, they almost met in, in, in a monthly basis. Mm. So, um, as a diplomat, the conclusion is that if, if you have a lot of summits, a lot of top-level meetings, uh, something is being discussed. Some kind of relations is being forged in those meetings. Not just chatting. You no, know, no, it's, it's not about chatting. It's a strategic goal that's yeah, yeah. being worked out. Yeah, so uh, I don't want to sort of overestimate this observation, but uh, I would say that um, uh, they have, uh, they don't have to be, uh, usually people say that... Uh, and I'm sorry, that was the 2020 era when you were... Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, usually people say that uh, these countries have a lot of, uh, also there's a distrust or it's an... Uh, 
alliance of the convenience or right. it's a kind of a kind of a uh, not such a serious relationship i don't think they have to coordinate everything right. and every time in order to be significant yeah so uh, i think we have to take into fact that these countries are closer than we perhaps expected them to be Tell us about your time serving in Ukraine and Russia and getting to know uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, you're one of the diplomats in Washington who's probably met with him uh, more than any other. Um, tell us about that. So um, when Putin came back uh, to presidency in 2012, I think he was, uh, I think there's a kind of a clear difference between Putin's two first terms and and then his his comeback because obviously he was more ideological, more critical, more negative attitude towards the West. I think he had already by that that time concluded that this kind of the idea of of, of strategic uh, uh, close relations with the West to him was a false idea. So mm. he had already concluded that this is not the way to go. Uh, so um, I saw and we saw the, the, the first moments of that new era. So uh, those years, I think we were, and I was able to gradually also uh, observe how this thinking uh, evolved. One of those uh, aspects that I think was really crucial was the, that there was an increasing uh, even obsession with history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the imperial thinking, especially regard, regarding Ukraine, that became more and more visible. And I think the apex of that uh, kind of a mental development was, of course, the publication of the famous Ukraine uh, text that came from Putin two years ago in the summer. Where in that text he declared that Ukraine is has to be part of... of he, he basically said that the, the story is that uh, Ukraine is an artificial state. Uh, it's ultimately part of the There's Russian... There's no such state. thing as a Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah. That uh, he tried to deny the existence or historical existence of the Ukrainian nation. So, uh, uh, in my assessment, um, to put it really bluntly... Uh, uh, You're known for being blunt, so please don't yeah. hold back. <laughs> I have to be... Have to have to hold back sometimes... Being, uh, I have to remind myself that I'm an ambassador. <laughs> but uh, I think um, the fundamental, I mean, the, the article and, and the obsession with history and all these, the, these are symptoms. But the underlying condition is, uh, I would say, it's a post-imperial kind of a syndrome. Yeah, as they this, this, this hangover. It, it always comes with some, some, some latency. So it, usually when the empire collapses... I was just going to say, it sounds like you've really thought about this. What are the other historical analogies? Is this, is, is this something we see throughout uh, we, history I when mean, a, we, we've empire seen, crumbles? Yeah, we've seen these cases uh, also in the past. Uh, when the Russian empire did collapse uh, uh, after the October Revolution in, 20, uh, in 1917, uh, it collapsed into a national pieces. Finland was one of those pieces. But what I'm saying here is that uh, historically, quite typically, an empire which has lost the status uh, tries to regain it. Yeah. When they feel that the, uh, they have gathered enough domestic strength, and when they feel that the international environment is kind of enables yeah. them to do that. 
And I think this was the conclusion that Putin had uh, a few years back. Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Just one, one other question about Putin, though. Is there, it's, someone once wrote that the best way to understand him is to read this sort of obscure book about judo he co-authored, which I always found so interesting. I, I bought a copy on, on eBay and frankly didn't quite see the, how it penetrated into his psyche. But is there just generally um, anything else in your experiences with him that you think it's important to know that's not widely understood in the US? Well, I think uh, I'm not a great fan of uh, finding any magic formulas to, <laughs> to opening his mind and kind of uh, predicting his actions uh, um, like judo or whatever. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the key moments for him obviously was the breakup of the Soviet Union because he was uh, in his uh, late 30s. He was part of the Soviet elite, KGB uh, uh, officer and so on. I think it must have been really a, a, a dramatic effect because he basically lost his status. His personal status. Yeah, it's also uh, personal the system, status and, yeah. and, and the system, it, it all sort of um, collapsed. Yeah. So uh, I think there's a fundamental um, kind of a feature in him is that this should never happen again. Yeah. Whatever happens, we, we, we can't really allow this to happen. But this is, this is one thing. Uh, otherwise, I do, I mean, like all the people, I mean, people who are in their 40s, like he was when he started his political career, and people who are in their early 70s, they are different people. Yeah, yeah. So uh, saying that there is one Putin and, and, and you have one kind of a magic key, I think it's all, all false. I think, like I said, I think he is different now than he was 20 years ago when we started to deal with him. At that point, he said most of the right things. He did some reforms right. to Russia, tax reform, a, a number of reforms that were, I think, concluded by all of us that these are fairly good steps. I think there were elements that, uh, that uh, were less ideological at that point. Yeah. Now the situation has changed. So now we are dealing with a person and, and with the regime which is openly nationalistic, which is also openly imperial, because if you deny the existence of your neighboring UN uh, chartered nation, then what is this if it's not imperial? Uh, and then the actions, of course, speaks, speak louder than, than, than the words. So uh, we are dealing with a different kind of a, uh, a system. And that is also one of the reasons why, uh, if you assess ours or some European countries' policies towards Russia, what they were like 10, 15, 20 years ago, I think we have to be also kind of a, a we need to have some understanding because things have changed, uh, things have changed yeah. and, and nobody could foresee the, the, the extent to which he was ready to go yeah. uh, 10 years ago. We saw the signs. Uh, we took some of them seriously. Uh, and one of the serious signs obviously was the occupation of Crimea, the origins of the East Ukrainian conflict. 
And that was also the situation when uh, Finland started to take steps getting closer to NATO. We started to change the the, 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 the practices, the, the the readiness levels of our armed forces. So people took notice. We yeah. did it. Uh, I think we did it better than many other countries. But uh, uh, it was still, at that point, it was quite difficult to to be able to predict uh, the extent where we are going. And overnight after the war started, Finland's public opinion flipped, became pro-NATO, and yeah. one of the quickest ascension to NATO that uh, we've, we've seen. Yeah. You know, at the beginning of this war, a lot of the commentary was how um, foreign policy of a number of European nations really changed overnight, and public opinion changed overnight, and, you know... So nuclear power at your doorstep will tend to concentrate the mind. Just tell us a little bit about that shift in the political system uh, at the beginning of the war and where things stand uh, right now. I think the sort of the earlier uh, kind of thinking in Finland uh, was that uh, if the Russian behavior stays within uh, certain parameters of respectable behavior, yeah. Then uh, joining NATO is not absolutely necessary. Yeah. So we are ready to be close partners to NATO, to the U.S., but probably we don't have to make that step if the Russians don't go beyond those limits. Yeah. So obviously, when the Russians already went beyond those limits in 2014, that already started uh, uh, some processes. Yeah. Uh, like I mentioned, we. We changed a number of things in our own readiness, and, and we, we we got closer to NATO. But um, I think the fundamental uh, reason for the change of mind was that uh, basically the Russian attack proved uh, it, it took the masks off, like our president used to say, that only the cold face of war was seen. But uh, Russia kind of came out of the closet, and, and that kind of uh, hit the people, and people did conclude that they now they went so far away from those kind of expected frame, frames yeah. that are no longer the existing set of policies that we have, part of them being non, non-membership in NATO, was kind of dismantled. So we had to take in the additional element. We always, uh, it was, it used to be one of my usual sentences when I ever met the Americans before we ever applied. Quite often uh, they said, uh, what can I do for you? Is, is there anything the U.S. should remember about Finland? I always said, I always said, keep the NATO door open. Mm. Then they usually asked, I mean, do are you intend, do you intend to join or yeah. apply? I said, no, but just keep it open because we just might one day. And the fact that it is open and it stays open for us was really important, even before we ever uh, decided to apply. What, what does it mean for both sides? What do you bring to NATO, and what does NATO get from Finland? I think you get um, uh, you get a number of things. Uh, you get a one of the oldest democracies in Europe, stable Nordic democracy. You will get also serious capabilities. I think this is uh, something that everybody agrees on. Uh, you will get a really modern Air Force. You will get uh, one of the, I, I guess it's the largest reserve army in Europe uh, per capita. 
you will get a serious defense culture, a country which is serious about these matters. Uh, you also get uh, a lot of uh, techn technological capabilities. You talked about how this war is so different than the wars, especially the, that have dominated U.S. politics since 9-11. We have a, a, a history since 9-11 of, um, of public opinion turning on, on Iraq, on Afghanistan, um, on Libya. These, these interventions on both, with respect to both parties are not looked upon as uh, unmitigated successes, I think you might say. By the end of the Obama administration, he was highly, highly skeptical of any sort of uh, military intervention. The consensus of the, of the more hawkish Democrats in the 90s and, uh, of Bill Clinton, that humanitarian intervention uh, could be successful. Uh, even that sort of more liberal idea had really, if not been discredited, it wasn't so popular. Donald Trump, um, his rhetoric at least, became much more isolationist. Um, it's only been a year in, into the, the Ukraine war. As we look at politics in Washington, we're constantly looking at where the cracks for support uh, emerge. Sometimes they're exaggerated, but you know you, you see them now. You, you see them especially with respect to some of the louder, more entrepreneurial uh, Republicans who think this is a, a, a an issue. Haven't seen it on the on the Democratic side as much, although um, there are certainly more traditional progressive peace voices who are not fond of of military intervention or um, you know. Making arms manufacturers uh, really, really wealthy by by, by sending uh, military aid. You are you are very plugged in in Washington. What? How do you assess uh, the political debate in in this country? The direction it's going, and is there anything you wish was more a part of that debate that would help uh, uh, understand the nature of of, of this uh, conflict that would push back against some of the. Uh, more anti-aid voices? Well, I think uh, most of the people in, in, in Washington, D.C., they, I think they do get the big picture. I do see that they realized that if Ukraine uh, will be overrun and, and occupied, that the consequences for the European security and also global security will be, will be fundamental. I think this kind of consensus unites most of the people. Then you have different degrees of... Uh, uh, some people may assess the risks a bit more carefully. Some people are more hawkish on, on those details. But I think the fundamental consensus is that uh, uh, Russia cannot and should not win uh, because it, it would be even more costly. Uh, you, you could save some resources in the short term, but then you, you would probably uh, uh, lose heavily in the long term and, and this is not uh, this is not a short-term game uh, unfortunately uh, as regards the kind of the the ideology here I mean I'm, I'm, the, the past wars I mean Iraq and Afghanistan I mean you may have a discussion and I do understand the discussion we have it too 
on, on, on both of these countries because Finland also played uh, some role uh, in, in both operations. But uh, even if you conclude that these were not, uh, like you said, it's unmitigated successes, or even if somebody concludes that these were unjustified or badly managed wars, even if somebody does that, uh, you can't take a vacation from this world's police. I mean, it's it's like like if I if I made mistakes in the past, it doesn't mean that I'm out of the game now. I mean, you still have to take up those challenges that do exist in, at a given moment. The thinking in the U.S. and the discussion sometimes that I, I hear the constant argument that uh, the Europeans are not doing enough yeah. in this case. Yeah. Um, That's always an easy. It's it's an easy it's an easy part, uh, uh, and I do think that uh, and, uh, this is my honest opinion. Uh, a number of European countries uh, need to take seriously these challenges, including how much do they spend in in, in mil- the military, how much, how do they invest, uh, what kind of capabilities they have to get, how much uh, industrial base they should have to be able to support others. So I, I think yeah. we have to face those. I mean. So to an extent, this criticism, I think it's justified. And I think we also not only deserve it in Europe, but it's also useful for us. So I think we shouldn't be kind of uh, then then getting agitated, like like why we are being criticized. I mean, because I, I think some of the message, um, part of the message is, is right. And the pressure to do a little yeah, bit more is good, yeah, you think, yeah, for Europe. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think it, it's false to say that the Europeans are not pulling their weight. You have to only, uh, just yesterday I, I visited the Polish embassy and we had a discussion on the civilians and refugees. Poland has now 2 million refugees only in Poland. We have roughly 50,000 in Finland. Uh, these are, uh, we are happy to have these people and help these people, receive these people. We feel it's a moral obligation to do so yeah. under the international law. So we have no no trouble with that. But it's still it's a huge resource that is being used for that. So saying that uh, uh, that Europeans are not uh, paying or uh, uh, kind of somehow being responsible for dealing with the conflict, I think it's 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 fundamentally false. And and I, I think you have to take into account the total support the Europeans are giving, the total cost on our resources that this war has. And then it, then it looks a bit different. Nobody disputes the fact that the U.S. has given more military support in absolute terms than anybody else. Yeah. And and without the U.S. support, I think all the Europeans do understand that without the U.S. support, things would probably look much different right now. But still, uh, I would avoid, uh, uh, while taking in part of the U.S. message and criticism, I think we should avoid uh, letting these, uh, these differences to be kind of a, too dominant in the discussions. Thank you very much for doing this. Really, really appreciate it and learned a lot. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for. And I'm sorry you declined Alex's idea of doing this in the sauna, the <laughs> famous sauna of the, <laughs> of the Finnish embassy. <laughs> you, you can enjoy a sauna. I mean, I mean, it's it's, it's better to enjoy a sauna without microphones. <laughs> they would get a little hot. I think. And that's our show. Our producers are Kara Tabor and Afra Abdullah. Our senior producer is Alex Keeney. 
I'm Ryan Lizza, host and executive producer of Deep Dive. Brooke Hayes is the senior editor of audio at Politico. Jenny Amont is Politico's executive producer of audio. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Please subscribe to Deep Dive wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Thank you.